0: Customers kept coming back to us saying, can you do more for me? Can you also do my taxes? And this is the other thing that's really attractive about bookkeeping as an entry point to the back office. There is a bunch of really natural expansion out of bookkeeping. So first, it's attractive to the customer to have all of this under one roof. Who's doing your books? Who's doing your taxes? Who's your strategic advisor or fractional CFO? Who's handling your R&D tax credits? Yeah, for sure. If you can get that all done under one roof and you don't have to deal with and coordinate amongst multiple vendors, awesome. So I think there's synergy on the product. It's a better customer experience. Getting that pull of, hey, can you do X for me? Can you do Y for me? Suggested that, yeah, we were actually providing a customer experience that was so valuable that people wanted to not just pay us for bookkeeping, but actually to expand the engagement with us.
1: Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth Podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at FirstRound.com. Hey everyone, welcome to In-Depth. I'm Todd Jackson and I'm a partner here at First Round. I'm back guest hosting a new episode in our series that explores founders' different paths to product market fit. Today's conversation is with Jessica McKellar, co-founder and CTO of Pilot, which is the largest accounting firm for startups. She's been working on Pilot for the last six years with her two co-founders, Wasim Daher and Jeff Arnold. But what makes this founding trio super unique is that they've stuck together in not just one, but three different startups. As repeat founders, the Pilot team has learned a ton from their first two ventures, K-Splice and Zulip, which both netted positive outcomes. But as Jessica will share today, there were mistakes the team made along the way that prevented both products from becoming an outsized success. So she unpacks what they did differently with Pilot particularly when it came to picking an acute problem and a huge market to tackle. Jessica also shares the tedious process for building the early version of the product, which included looking over Wasim and Jeff's shoulders as they manually did the bookkeeping for early customers, while she wrote code alongside them. Even going back to the earliest days, Pilot had some really strong product market fit signals, with customers agreeing to pull out their credit card and pay for the product right away when it was just an idea on paper and eventually pulling the Pilot team into expanding their product suite. Make no mistake about it, being a founder is incredibly difficult, but choosing the right problem to tackle can drastically smooth the path ahead of you. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jessica. So today I'm joined by Jessica McKellar, the founder and CTO of Pilot, a bookkeeping platform for startups and small businesses. Pilot was founded in 2017 and is now the largest accounting firm for startups in the U.S., they hit unicorn status in 2021 and have an incredible set of investors, Sequoia, Stripe, Index, and a long list of great folks. And Jessica is a three-time founder and has started all three companies with the same two co-founders, Jeff Arnold and Wasim Daher. And I had the opportunity to work with Jessica, Jeff, and Wasim at Dropbox. So I'm super excited to dig into Pilot's founding story today. Jessica, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So you've now started three companies together with Jeff and Wasim, Splice, which I know you sold to Oracle, and Zulip, which you sold to Dropbox. That's how we met. Tell me about your co-founders, how you met them, and why you seem to love starting companies together so much.
0: I've known them for longer than I've known my husband. So some of the longest relationships that I've had in my life are with Jeff and Wasim. So we were all computer nerds at MIT. We met in MIT's computer club called Sippy, the Student Information Processing Board, which is a callback to when there was like a timeshare computer system that you had to reserve time on. Um, And this was the club that helped allocate that time. The nerdiest of the computer nerds hung out at the computer club, and that's where we met.
1: Obviously, there's a really deep relationship and sense of trust with Jeff and Wasim, but I imagine things have changed over the years. You know, it's been years and years, three companies. What keeps the three of you together as being great co-founders?
0: Yeah, well, you said trust, and I think that's so, so important. You know, sincerely amongst the the three of us, having 100% trust and belief and faith in each of us doing what is right for the business and just having our shit together in our respective areas of ownership within the company. I think it's a rare thing to experience. I would never let go of it. I think that statistically, I wouldn't find it again if I were to try to start another company with other people. You know, how did we get to that point? I think, like any relationship, I and mean, keep in mind, you know, coming out of school, we're, we're like, what, 22? I mean, we're like dumbasses coming out of MIT. <laughs> but I'm now 35. We've all matured as human beings, as well as business owners, as well as startup founders, as well as managers and leaders. And like any relationship, there are ups and downs. I have said this before. I think Jeff would agree. It probably took Jeff and me a solid like seven years to really get along. But I I think why did we start working together? I think it's because we thought we were the most effective potential co-founders that we knew. And why did we stay together? Because we knew that we were so effective as a group. I mean, being founders is not about being best friends. I think it's, it can be helpful to, I mean, you need to get along with the people that you're working with. You're spending eight to 10 to 12 or however many hours a day with them. But it's about, are you able to deliver results as business owners together? And so I think we deliver results consistently together and we want to be successful. And we're values aligned. We're values aligned about what kind of company we want to build, the kind of company culture that we want to build. So if you have the alignment and it's effective, I mean, that's so precious. We would never let go of that.
1: You know, I want to dig into this because I think you said some interesting things there. So Values aligned is one thing. And it sounds to me like motivation aligned, too. Are there other things about it? Are the three of you good at three different things and then some things you're all good at? What are the real components here of what's making this work? I think other founders or future founders are kind of interested in what makes these dynamics work.
0: Yeah, the diversification has been interesting. So we're all MIT trained computer scientists. So (laughs) that's that's uh, a lot of duplication and background. So how how did we end up covering the responsibilities of a founding team or a, of an executive team? So first, I think the fact that we all come from this technical background has been helpful for us, for the types of products and services that we're building, because we have this shared understanding about how to approach building software, about how quickly can you build a product? These things that you know from having d- done it before yourselves in the weeds, that that's a foundation that we're aligned on. And then... I think by our personalities, we pretty early on started to separate into our areas of expertise that have become very durable for us. When you meet me, Jeff and Wasim, it's so obvious from our personalities how we ended up this way. (laughs) Wasim is a people person. You know, he likes talking to people. He likes selling stuff. You know, he gravitated towards the sales side, towards the go-to-market side. At the beginning, I mean, in the Case Place days, like 10 years ago, I mean, he was the first salesperson at Case Place, And that's stuck ever since through every company. He has really been on the go-to-market side. Jeff reads corporate tax law for fun. <laughs> you know, he has the honor of having pointed out an error in the YC-SAFE agreement. He's maybe the only bug report they've ever received, for all I know. Wow. That's where his head is. And he is great at those nitty gritty details of running a business safely, fundraising, and also a lot of really incisive kind of strategic thinking. He brings that analytical mind and in some ways like a conservativeness about how to make sure that we're running the business safely. That's really important. And then I've always stayed on the product side, like staying close to customers. I mean, all three of us are very close to customers. and That's really important. Nobody should be closer to the customer experience and founders. You want other people along to be as obsessed as you, but you should never delegate that responsibility to anybody else.
1: So let's talk about K-Splice and Zulip a little. Yeah, you know, I wanted to get to Pilot, but let's talk about those first. So what do you think worked well about those businesses and what was kind of the journey or the hunt for product market fit like for each of those?
0: Yeah, so K-Splice, like I said, the seed, K-Splice. It's the late 2000s. So I was a technical advisor for the, the HBO show Silicon Valley, and there are a bunch of anecdotes in that show that come from the k era. Oh, no way. And the k experience was such a good, formative, I think, first company experience for us because it was so scrappy, so gross. Like, k took no external funding. k started as Jeff's master's thesis. He had developed an experimental technology for rebootless kernel updates on Linux. So imagine that you are a hosting company or a supercomputing cluster and you have a lot of computers and uptime is really important, but you also want your computers to be safe. You want to be applying security updates timely. What do you do? Because normally that requires downtime. Okay, we have this kind of magical deep tech that allows you to apply these kernel updates without rebooting. Coming out of school winning the MIT 100K startup competition, got some initial funding to try to turn this into an actual service that we could sell, like turn it into a real business. Otherwise, totally bootstrapped, like took no venture funding. A bunch of people lived in the house that we worked out of, like dubiously zoned. We had to hide when the landlord was coming. There was like a serious mouse problem. (laughs) Uh, So disgusting. But I mean, boy, do you appreciate a dollar, obviously, when it's your dollar, I mean, didn't pay ourselves all of the usual stuff that you can imagine there. So but when every dollar is your dollar, it's like, okay, well, should I hire this person? It's like, well, what am I going to get for it? Like, what's our runway? What do we need to accomplish before we run out of the very limited money we have? When that's your situation, it's like you got to get customers who pay you as quickly as possible. So the urgency and the scrappiness and the, hey, you got to make it work with a small team And prove it out and start making money with a small team. And you don't have the luxury of hiring more engineers, more salespeople, a marketing person, what have you. That instilled very good appreciation for revenue and a good work ethic in us. And I think we have carried that with us through the rest of our companies. And it's actually ended up having an impact on Pilot because one of the things that was true about White, we certainly couldn't afford a back office team. So how did we get our bookkeeping done? We did it ourselves. We like literally got a copy of QuickBooks for Dummies. And at the time, QuickBooks Desktop, QuickBooks Online didn't exist. And like tried to do it ourselves. We even wrote some software to try to do it and like auto close the books ourselves. So that experience of like, hey, we've got to take care of our finances. How are we going to get it done? Who do we trust? Who can we afford? I mean, we experienced that viscerally even back at Case Place.
1: Wow. Okay. So some origins then of the, the later pilot idea came all the way back then. So what what about Zulip? Was that a similar journey for you or different?
0: Yeah. So Zulip, <laughs> Zulip like tulip with a Z, uh, sort of like Slack before Slack existed. And obviously you've heard about Slack and you haven't heard about Zulip. So A, timing is everything. B, execution, polish, not overfitting on you know, really sophisticated technical users. There are a bunch of lessons that we learned from trying to build Zulip, but that is a company that literally kind of a year and a day after the k acquisition by Oracle, we ended up back in one of our living rooms thinking about what other business problems did we experience, did our friends experience that we thought were worth solving and how to communicate business communication, real-time chat, group chat was the thing that we landed on. And so the thing about Zulip was that there were some companies that passionately, passionately, passionately use Zulip, like eight to 10 hours a day average for the company per person using the product, deeply integrating it into their workflows. And that was so exciting to see. And then it was too hard and complicated for everybody else. And I think what we learned from that is like, hey, be really careful about overfitting to your experience, you need to make sure that you're selling something that is going to resonate with the intended audience. It's hard to build a business around selling a chat product only to like the hyper sophisticated tech users. You can, but you have to fund the business and build the business and market the business in a very specific way if that's what you're going to do. If your goal is to be like a big business that is solving business group chat for a broad segment of the market, you need to make sure that you're actually building that. And so like, how do you how do you validate that what you're building actually resonates with a broad enough base in a passionate way? We learned that it's always a hard way at Zula because we probably didn't do that successfully. And so what we ended up doing is getting acquired by Dropbox. Dropbox was excited to integrate some of the lessons that we had learned about business group chat into its product strategy.
1: And so you mentioned with K-Splice, it was like a year and a day, you know, lasted at Oracle. Then it's like, we're going to do our next thing.
0: Yeah. Which, to be fair, Oracle treated us very well. Okay. That was great. But we knew that we wanted to get back in the saddle. We had more that we wanted to do and prove to ourselves.
1: And did you know that again at Dropbox? Like, did you know that that was going to be a temporary stint and that you guys were going to found another company together?
0: Yeah, I think so. I lasted the longest of the three of us at Dropbox. I was there for almost four years. I had like a solid tour there. Actually, it was pretty difficult extracting myself from... I was, I was actually employed by both Dropbox and Pilot at the same time for a while. Jeff and Waseem ended up leaving a little bit earlier. I think we did know that we wanted a last go around. And why? Like to accomplish what? I think that's worth being honest about. And Jeff and Waseem might have slightly different answers from me on this. But I think speaking for myself, number one, we wanted to have the experience of building a company to a later stage than Case splice and Zulip had gotten to. Like we wanted the experience of, I mean, ideally the path to, to a public company. And then also, you know, for the financial upside, like we want to build a company that is wildly successful, that is transformative financially. And I think it's worth saying out loud because building a company is a lot of work. There are many much easier professions that one could have than being a startup founder. And I think in some cases, people truly have a product or service that they so passionately believe needs to exist in the world that they're doing it for the benefit of humanity, almost. But I think most people are probably are doing it because you think you're going to get a lot of money if it's successful. And yeah, that's a part of it. Because it's, way- it's so much work. It's so much work. I'm definitely not going to do this again. This is definitely my last company. And Pilot is definitely going to be successful. So glad for that. But I don't think I have another startup in me.
1: Love that. Okay, awesome. Let's get into the kind of early days of Pilot. You know, it struck me that some of the kind of observations you had way back in the day at KSplice around the market opportunity, the problem you're solving, but also it seems like you did things a little differently. Like with KSplice, you had the technology and you're like, who can we sell this to? With Zulip, you had the product and you're like, who wants this? I feel like with Pilot from what I know about the story you did it quite differently in terms of like how you came up with the idea and validated the idea. We talk about that?
0: Yeah. So again, kept back on a couch thinking about what <laughs> what problems we wanted to solve it. and frankly what business problems we wanted to solve were not consumer people. So what business problem do we want to solve? And we knew what business problems we had had, but how do we learn about where the pain is most acute? for startups, for small businesses. And, you know, we did this straightforward thing that you would do if you wanna answer that question, which is you go talk to a lot of startup founders and small business owners and ask, what are your biggest pain points? And so we did that. We literally, I mean, we surveyed finance and accounting teams, legal teams, HR teams, in a bunch of SMBs, like early stage startups, mid-market companies, and assembled themes. And those themes happen to drive with what our experience had been at Case place.
1: How did you do that by the way, Jessica? did you like call them up on the phone? Did you send email surveys? What's the actual method here?
0: We have friends all over the place like go out, hey, can you do me a favor? Can I like talk to you for thirty minutes about your challenges being in accounting at Dropbox? Got it okay. so yes, yeah, sit someone down, buy them coffee and get the deep qualitative feedback on this and The overwhelming loudest theme in this was, in fact, that getting your finance and accounting taken care of was seemingly as unsolved a problem somehow in 2016, 2017, as it had been back in 2009 when we were at K-Splice and trying to do it ourselves. You know, that seemed like a thread that was worth pulling on. So we started pulling on it.
1: What level of kind of validation or like things that you needed to hear from people got you there? Like, were you still considering other ideas besides accounting and bookkeeping? What made this the winning idea?
0: I think it was the winning idea because A, it was the loudest. And I remember having a document that I I think it had two or three final candidates in it.
1: Do you remember what the others were?
0: Uh, There was something about HR software. I don't remember the details, but why, why bookkeeping first? So first, loudest theme. Second, Enormous market. Third, like the ASPs that we thought we could command if we're really solving the problem end to end. So, not selling bookkeeping or accounting software, but being your bookkeeping solution. You know, what does the market pay for bookkeeping today? And it's like hundreds to thousands of dollars per month. Like, if we can capture that, you know, the higher the ASP in general, the more choice you have about how you're going to build the company. You have more marketing dollars to spend. Like You have more choices about your go-to-market strategy if you have higher ASPs. So like this idea that we could capture the hundreds to thousands of dollars per month for a subscription service, solving bookkeeping end-to-end, that's really attractive. Like versus, let's say, HR software. How much can you get a company to pay for HR software? It's probably like a much smaller percentage of their total spend. And then... Who are the incumbents? Well, who does bookkeeping? Bookkeeping is done by a long tail of mostly local, small local providers. So we don't have, you know, one or two huge incumbents that are going to make our lives really difficult. We're competing against these kind of small outfits that have widely varying quality. There's a lot of latent dissatisfaction in the market with, with the existing solutions, in a world where more and more of your systems, like your your bank accounts, your credit cards, your payroll system, your expense reporting system, how you're invoicing, all of that stuff is all moving online, we can benefit from this trend towards digitization. And it's also harder for legacy bookkeeping firms to keep up. If you are a company that, you know, sells something online as a subscription service via Stripe, and you have 5,000 Stripe invoices every month and you care about getting the service periods right, it's actually hard to solve that problem if you're not writing software to book those entries, right? Like we can do things that nobody else can do because we're able to write software to accomplish parts of the bookkeeping process. So for all of these reasons, like the rising tide of digitization of your financial systems, the high ASPs, the market not having big, scary incumbents that were going to make our lives hard. It's not a regulated industry. For all of these reasons, it just it seemed like it really had teeth. So what is the next step? Like At some point, you just have to call it. You say, OK, we're going to try it. And what does it mean to try it? Well, it means you're going to try to get someone to pay you. <laughs> the true proof point is, can you get someone to pay you? And so, you know, we start out, we have, we have no engineers. We have no software. We have no bookkeepers. We just have me, Jeff, and Waseem. So what do we do? We go to some of our startup founder friends and say, hey, How do you get your books done? Oh, that's a pain point for you. Great. Would you pay us $100 a month to take care of your bookkeeping? And if they say no, like probe on why. And if they say yes, say, great, please provide your ACH details and we will commence with being your bookkeeper. And then Jeff and Waseem start doing the books manually. And I look over their shoulder and start writing software to do that work in software.
1: Wow. So what was the reaction to that that you were getting? Were they like, hell yes, I need this. Were they like, wait, what makes you guys qualified to do this? Was there any of that? The
0: problem for the average founder is like, who am I supposed to trust to do my books? It's not like there's some clear best in class provider that all of your other startup founder friends are using that you kind of web of trust are going to go sign up with. It's totally fragmented. What are you going to do? You're going to go on Yelp? and uh, find the best bookkeeper. Like, no one's going to do that. It's a trust-based decision, and it's hard to get feedback from people you trust on what bookkeeper to use because it's so fragmented. So it's like, hey, I don't know. It was Steve and Jeff and Jessica are smart people. I, like, know, like, they're seem like, reasonable people. They have experience running companies that have been successful. It's not worse than signing up with a random bookkeeper who I have no context on. Sure. Yeah, let's have you do it. You'll at least care you'll care enough to try to make sure my books are correct, right? Because you're trying to build a company. I think that was the reaction. It's like, hey, if I can if I can stop thinking about this because Waseem, who's a reasonable human being who I trust, is going to do the books for me, sure.
1: And so the three of you are doing the books by hand, and then you're also sort of watching over over shoulders and figuring out how do we engineer this? How do we automate this? When did the software start getting written?
0: I mean, immediately. It's it literally like, okay, Jeff and Waseem are... You know, what does it mean to do the books? It's like you're importing transactions into QuickBooks. You are reconciling. You're categorizing. You're dealing with bills. You're dealing with invoices. There's a review process. Like, how do you validate that to yourself and to the customer that the books are correct? Okay, well, let's get really familiar with the QuickBooks APIs and figure out what's possible. You know, start figuring out what are the systems that we would need to build. Step one is, like, produce a checklist. Can you articulate what needs to happen in a checklist? Because if you can do that, you can piece by piece translate that checklist into software. And yeah, you've got to build these big systems. You start getting the shape of what is the process flow? What are the checklist steps? What are the systems that need to be built? And then you just crank on it.
1: So how many customers did you take on at once while you were doing this? Like, could you handle 10 or 20 of these folks or was it less?
0: Yeah, dozens. Okay. We used to track all of our customers on a whiteboard. Now we have like really sophisticated internal coordination software to make sure that we're delivering on all of our commitments on time. But uh, yeah, it's like on a whiteboard. This one's assigned to Wasim, This one's assigned to Jeff. This one's due on the 10th. This one's due on the 12th. I mean, we're the founders, right? It's like, oh, we're running behind. Great. Work later. <laughs> Tell you, catch up.
1: How long was this period where you would sort of consider it like the design partner phase or the, no pun intended, but. The pilot phase for pilot. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it was short in that. I mean, the goal is to get revenue and not just because that's ultimately how the business is going to find itself, but because it proves that you are selling the right thing, that you're pricing it correctly. I think very early we spun up a website and like let people try to pay us.
1: At this point, you're charging $100 a month, right? Which is, I assume, not the ASP you, you were sort of striving for initially. So when did that kick in that you could charge what you wanted?
0: I think we started taking on more complex customers, and we needed to charge more <laughs> to have the margins that we want. And Pilot has strong margins, but yeah, you know, margin is is an important part of how we assess the health of the business and the growth of the business because it is not pure SaaS like shrink. It's not shrink wrap software. We're we're delivering a a service uh, on a monthly basis. We're very attentive to margins, but yeah, you know, starting to take on larger customers a what can we charge for the value being delivered and be what do we need to charge to have reasonable margins like now and or in the future? Right. Because we can project out, you know, if it's circa 2017, 2018, we can project out that we're going to see a bunch of lift through software. We actually have a pretty tidy heuristic for this, which is if you if you look out in the market, we we know that most businesses Whether or not they're using pilot, most businesses spend between a half a percent and a percent of their total spend on finance and accounting. And if you know that, you can build a pricing and packaging model around that.
1: So during this period, Jessica, 2017, 2018, are there one or two moments that kind of stick out to you as like, I think we're hitting product market fit, like confidence inspiring moments or like where it really where you start to convince yourself this is looking like product market fit?
0: One of the experiences was, of course, we, we used the software that we were building to close Pilot's own books. And I think we would have moments like the software would catch something and, we, you know, it's like, oh, a double payment for something. And we'd be like, this wouldn't have happened unless we were using Pilot. Like the information that we were getting from the books, we wouldn't be getting that information, we didn't think, if it were being done the traditional way. And so I think just the dogfooding of the product internally was very affirming of the route that we were going. You know, oftentimes sitting around being like, I have no idea how. I mean, even today we sit around being like, I don't understand how bookkeeping gets done outside of Pilot. Bookkeeping is actually hard. It's very hard for human beings to reliably execute on complex accounting processes. And we're often just sitting around amazed that people even try to do it outside of Pilot. It's just too error prone. So I think the internal dog fooding was, was definitely important. I mean, what other kind of customer moments? The other thing is just customers kept coming back to us saying, can you do more for me? Like, you do my books. Can you also do my taxes? You know, initially it's like, no, we can't. It's like, uh, maybe we need to. <laughs> Let's look into doing that as well, right? Because and this is the other thing that's really attractive about bookkeeping as an entry point to the back office. There is a bunch of really natural expansion out of bookkeeping. So first, it's it's attractive to the customer to have all of this under one roof. Who's doing your books? Who's doing your taxes? Who's your strategic advisor or fractional CFO? Who's handling your R&D tax credits? Yeah, for sure. If you can get that all done under one roof and you don't have to deal with and coordinate amongst multiple vendors, awesome. Do that. And then it actually produces a higher quality product because we have the information about the company from all sides, right? If we're your bookkeeper and your tax preparer, if the tax preparer has a question, they can just go ask the bookkeeper. And we, like, and we have a deep understanding of how Pilot does bookkeeping to make that exchange really efficient, to avoid mistakes, things like that. So I think there's, there's sort of synergy on the product. It's a better customer experience. And so, yeah, getting that pull of, hey, can you do X for me? Can you do Y for me? suggested that, yeah, we were actually providing a customer experience that was so valuable that that people wanted to not just pay us for bookkeeping, but actually to expand the engagement with us.
1: Yeah, that's a great signal. So I want to come back to this idea, Jessica, because we covered it quickly of this very fundamental decision that you were not just going to be a software provider providing some point solution. Instead, you were going to be an end to end service provider that really solved the full problem for the customer. And that probably was an incredibly pivotal choice for you. Did you always know that that was going to be the approach? Did you ever consider doing it the other way or sort of what went into that decision?
0: I think we always knew that that would be the approach for two reasons. One is from our own experience, from the experience talking with business owners, founders, nobody was saying, hey, I want more accounting software. People were saying, I want to give this problem to someone else and have peace of mind that it is being solved. The feedback was, we want the end to end ownership, and then also it goes back to the ASPs. QuickBooks Online, it's like thirty five bucks a month, fifty bucks a month, depends on what plan you're on, hundred bucks a month. Pilot owning the problem end to end, you know, it's like the plans today start at four ninety nine, and people pay us five figures sometimes for bookkeeping. You know, bigger companies that have more complex needs, so we'd much prefer the larger ASP. It's also kind of more fun. Like, I'd rather solve, you know, I don't know. I enjoy seeing the end-to-end impact that we have on businesses. You know, we get feedback like, hey, honestly, I don't think that we would have raised this round if you, Pilot, had not been there with us.
1: That's amazing. You
0: know, hey, I'm a first-time founder. And honestly, I've always been really intimidated by the accounting, and because of that, I really was leaning out of it. But with Pilot there as a partner, I feel like I have a much better understanding of my business. I'm not afraid of it anymore, and now I'm actually excited to lean into this side of things. Hearing stories like that, we get invited to holiday parties. People (laughs) tell us when they have kids. Oh, my favorite one, so we, and it's funny because we actually saw this happening in the books, and then the customer also told us, We had a customer, that they generated their first dollar of revenue and then they like bought a frame for it and they framed it. And it was funny because we actually saw that we could like see in the transaction that we saw them make like like, buy the stuff to frame the dollar. But they told us and they sent us a picture of them holding this frame dollar. It's a more human thing than I would have guessed before we started the company. And I like that. I like being plugged in with people.
1: I think it comes back to the fact that you had validated this so thoroughly, like loudest problem, you know, high value problem in terms of the ASP big market. To me, these are sort of like multi-time founder moves, things that you had sort of like hard-won lessons from before that now you went and and really did the work to make good picks, a good pick of the market, a good pick on this, you know, solve the problem end to end. Like I think it's mature picking by multi-time founders.
0: Oh, thanks. The number one thing I would highlight there is If your plan is to try to build an enduring company, one that can be independent for a long time, one that can go public, you need to tackle a market that's large enough. A lot of other things you can change after you've started, you can't change the size of the market. We had tackled smaller markets before. The market for businesses who care about rebootless kernel updates on Linux is... A great market and not huge. Like K-Splice was always going to end up being acquired. It's just too niche a product to live on its own independently. Like we've done that before. We knew starting Pilot that we wanted to tackle a really big market, something that could really have legs indefinitely.
1: Okay, so 2017, 2018, maybe we're getting to 2019 now. Did Pilot do a launch, like a V1 launch, or was it always sort of just get more customers, get more customers?
0: Yeah, what are launches really for? (laughs) Let me t- I'll start talking about pilot. I, this is, I'm sure, not universally true, but when I think about launches, they're mostly about organizing yourself internally, rallying the team around a new feature, a new product, a new sales motion, new marketing collateral, getting the team excited, and and getting it out the door. Launches mostly don't like cause you to have a bunch of new money. Like they don't those they don't cause you to have a bunch of new customers. Usually you see like a bump in website traffic. You see a spike in signups briefly. But the way that you stay on the revenue growth curve that you want to be on is not through launches. It's through whatever your go-to-market flywheel is. If we're for pilot, it's like deliver a service people love. They love it so much that they stay with us and they also tell their friends who then become pilot customers. Like, that is the go-to-market flywheel. And that's how our revenue grows. Launches are opportunities for some press moments that are useful as, like, part of the social proof of Pilot. It's useful for getting the team excited. But they don't really move the needle on your metrics. So I don't actually remember when we, you know, we, we like, got the name Pilot, which is its own saga, <laughs> uh, Pilot.com. And, you know, we so we had, like, we we did like, put up a website at one point. At some point, we moved from click here, if you're interested, to just, like, having pricing on the website and the ability to, like, start the sales process. There were moments, oh, you know, we, like, launched CFO services. We launched tax. We launched R&D tax credits. But that was mostly we had done all of the work internally to be able to do those things. And at some point, you need to put it on the website. And so, like, sure, try to get some press around it. Yeah, of course. It's so not important in the grand scheme of things.
1: Small sidetrack question. Pilot.com, I imagine that was an expensive domain.
0: It wasn't cheap, yeah.
1: Why did you do that? Why was that important?
0: So first, picking company names is like one of the bottom 10 experiences of running companies. It's awful. All good names are taken. All na- All good names are expensive. Like the way that you solve this problem, presumably the way that we do it, at least, I assume basically everybody does, is you like lock yourselves in a room and you don't let yourselves come out until by, like, the war of attrition on your sanity, you pick the least bad option from a set of of names. And, like, the, you know, the names, it's, like, the domain, like, the .com has to be available. It should be spellable and pronounceable, probably. There can't be, like, IP issues. The domain has to be purchasable. Like, someone's got to be willing to sell it to you. Blah, blah, blah. It, like, takes forever. It's awful. Pilot.com. How do we get Pilot.com? Okay, well, we knew that we wanted... Because of what we do, we sell accounting services. It's kind of a serious thing, right? Like we need to come off as professional and with it, and we've got your back. So we're not going to have like the joy of booking dot com. Like we're not going to have a punny name. We're not going to have a made up word name. What projects confidence and competency? So probably like a real English word. Okay, let's find some real English words that are available to purchase that are pronounceable, that are spellable, that don't have IP issues. And you produce a list and then you send off some domain brokers to try to secure them. And then you pay a lot of money. (laughs) But, you know, you do it because you believe it's worth it. You believe that Pilot is going to be around for a long time. This is a brand that's worth investing in. It is worth the upfront cost to be able to build a brand that's going to last for decades around this idea. That's how and why we bought Pilot.com. Also, I will take credit for the name. There was a short list. Pilot was on it. There were some other other ones. Some are better than others. I think swan.com was on the list. Cast.com. I think mountain.com. I think sesame.com had some IP issues. But Pilot was on my list, and it ended up being the winner.
1: I think it's a great name. It's the best out of those choices, for sure. Okay, so let's, you know, we sort of, covered the early days, let's get into kind of expansion of the company. And it strikes me that a few years in, you expanded in two ways. One was not just startups, but larger enterprises. And then another form of expansion was product expansion and sort of suite of services. So if we talk through each of those, so the expanding the audience to different size companies, you know, in different verticals or whatever, what was the thinking around that or the validation of that?
0: So some of this is structural. So given the market size, given the goal of the company, which is to be the financial back office for a broad range of small businesses and startups, you know, at some point we've got to break out of startups. Startups are a very, very, very small percentage of the economy. Like, okay, so if you're if you're building a business that's trying to solve accounting, you've capitalized the business in a particular way. Like we've done these fundraising rounds. And this is all with the goal of building a company that's going to be independent for a long time and eventually go public. You need to be on a particular revenue growth curve. You know, you need to be able to get to billions of dollars a year in revenue. If that's the strategy that you've set out upon, you know that at some point you're going to need to move out of startups. And so it's a question of when do we have the, the expertise When do we have the go-to-market and R&D leadership? When do we have the new verticals playbook to start experimenting with expanding into new verticals? So it was inevitable that we would do this question of when, where first, right? And I think similar, actually, to the product expansion, where do you go first? For us, it's, well, who's wanting to use Pilot? Like, who's knocking at our door that we're turning away? You know, we see a lot of e-commerce companies knocking on our doors. CG&R companies. We see a lot of professional services firms knocking at our doors. Okay. What we are already saying out in the market is resonating with them without us even really trying to. Let's learn operationally about these types of businesses. What is the delta from startups to these types of businesses that we need to adapt to on the product side, on the service delivery side? And then once we feel really confident that we can deliver a high-quality experience let's communicate that to the go-to-market side so we can open the floodgates from a marketing perspective, from a sales perspective. So yeah, in terms of expanding into new verticals, it's like who's coming to us? That's early proof that we maybe have a really strong right to win with a little bit of elbow grease and some new verticals and then do that work and go after it. And then for diversifying the product line, as we talked about earlier, pilot is a better experience when we do all of your financial back office, because we can handle the coordination, what we know from doing your books, from doing your AP, from doing your AR, from doing your taxes can feed into what your you know, fractional CFO from pilot needs to know to be an effective strategist with you. And, and again, customers were asking us for this. Hey, can you be my fractional CFO? Can you do my taxes? So I think being very customer led on this has served us very well it's more efficient than trying to build the sales-led growth. Like, hey, can we staff out like an outbound sales team that tries to make the sales happen? Hey, if they're coming to us, great.
1: Well, I mean, this is an incredible position to be in where you are literally getting pulled by your customers upmarket. You're getting pulled into new verticals. You're getting pulled into new products. Like, That's something a lot of companies are probably very envious of. Is that All just because, again, like coming back to the really good choice of what to build and what problem to go after. Like, how do other companies experience these luxuries? What
0: do we do? We sell a bunch of services that scaffold off of an activity that is effectively legally required for all businesses. You have to do your taxes and you, generally speaking, need books to do your taxes. That's a problem that literally every business has. It's not a nice to have. It's a must have. And because of that, it's an enormous market. Yes, this all goes back to market size and and the the uh, nice-to-have must-have spectrum, too. You know, yeah, if you can be selling something that's a must-have, that's very resilient to a broad range of market conditions. You know, okay, it's 2023, COVID, the current kind of weird tech recession-y environment where capital's all locked up, Hey, you know, being a must have has made us much more resilient to these changes in the market than if we were a nice to have. So, yeah, I'm incredibly blessed. Part It's part of why we pursued this.
1: The follow up question there is, OK, so you knew you had to expand both in terms of customer base and product suite. When were you like, hey, now is the right time to run one of these experiments? Because, because the core business is working. And so that's a question that I, that I think founders often ask is like, when do I try my next new thing?
0: The first answer to this is we're very protective of that go-to-market flywheel that's about the brand and the reputation we have that we can only earn by actually doing a good job. Like we need to be delighting our customers consistently. First and foremost, we need to not jeopardize that. What can we do safely? Do we have the right instrumentation, the right feedback loops, the right expertise on the team? First things first, North Star, don't ever jeopardize CSAT. Against that backdrop, and just being honest about this, the revenue curve is like a brutal curve. If you're going to actually be on like the triple, 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 double, double, you know, you're like on the path. Your goal is to be on like the best in class path towards being a public company. Yeah, you know, it's like every six months you're like, oh, shit, we need like, what's our next <laughs> additional revenue stream, right? And so I think there's, again, the, the natural interplay between, hey, we're setting these aggressive growth goals for ourselves and what are our customers asking us to do? And so it's not like we're like, oh, hey, I mean, if you just think about it, you're not like, oh, hey, we think we could make a bunch of money doing this other thing. Should we do it? Yes, no. Of course you can say yes. You're like desperate to be hitting your revenue numbers every quarter because the curve is brutal.
1: Okay, so, you know, the revenue curve and the venture path, you know, you had mentioned funding briefly. Will you talk about, Jessica, just like your seed round, your A round, your B round, when you did those and what the reason to do each of them was?
0: Embarrassingly, I have to like kind of page this back in because, and here's here's the truth. Fundraising, super important, something to celebrate, exciting for the team, important for like managing like the company and as part of the company narrative and managing morale fundraising is not the same as revenue <laughs> so and there's some amount of like we do the fundraising because you have to do it but it doesn't occupy as big a percentage of our brands as you might think you always want to fundraise when you don't need money because if you need money then you have very limited leverage over the terms in general it's better to have money than not so if someone wants to give you money on good terms I don't think it's ever failed. Uh, Like a reasonable firm wants to give you money on good terms. It's usually a good idea to take it. Better to have money in the bank and not. That has proven very true during COVID and then now, like in this current climate. I mean, what exactly did we raise? Gosh, I don't remember. You hit a set of metrics milestones that make it kind of appropriate to be talking about the next phase of the business and what the next phase of the business needs. Like, What capital do we need to hit the next round of milestones? I mean, that's really what's happening fully. If you, like, totally zoom out and abstract this, right? You raise a seed round to have the money to hit the milestones to raise the A. <laughs> and then you raise the A and you size the A and you time the A to have the runway that you need to hit the milestones for the B and so on on the path towards being profitable to then be in control of your destiny. I mean, that that is, like, fully abstractly what's going on, right? So I don't remember what exactly... The criteria were for, you know, it's like the A, you need to have like real traction. You need to start showing good margin trajectory. For the B, you like definitely need to be showing strong unit economics. For the C, you like need to be proving that you can repeatedly become a category leader in different verticals. It's kind of the standard milestones, I think, for a SaaS style business that we followed.
1: Do you have any advice for other founders, in particular given where we are in the funding climate, you know, very different and much more challenging than 18 months ago? Do you have any advice or things that you share with founders about how to approach fundraising in today's environment?
0: The thing that caught up to a lot of businesses and I understand why, I understand why this happens and I I have empathy for people who got squeezed by this, but You've got to be on top of your burn multiple. There are a bunch of standard metrics that you need to track. And there's a good reason why VCs pay attention to this and why public markets care about this for public companies. You need to like live within your means reasonably as a startup, even early. So be well informed about what that means. What are the appropriate burn guardrails for your business? And what does that mean about your headcount plan? And what does that mean about what you can accomplish in the next six to 12 months? If you feel like you aren't super clear on the details on that, come to Pilot. We'll connect you with a Pilot CFO and we will get this crystal clear. Like you need to have a crystal clear operating model and like very clear alignment amongst the executive team on where all of these financial metrics need to be.
1: So I guess coming back to Pilot, you know, you've expanded so far in terms of customer base and product suite. How do you think about where you are now in 2023? How far you've come and and kind of what is next for Pilot?
0: Doesn't it feel like a lifetime? I feel like I've been working on Pilot since I was born. I mean, what's next for Pilot? So first, I don't know that this is surprising, but it's, it's the reflection that I have when you ask this question. In a good way, the founders, like I am still so plugged in to the company like I am so close to customers. I am on customer calls every week. I'm on sales calls every week. When we get the occasional escalation, I am in there like helping draft language or helping like make sure we finesse the situation well. I still do bookkeeping sometimes. I'm actually a pretty good bookkeeper. I, I, that's like been a actually it's, doing books that are clean is actually very enjoyable. I don't think I would have guessed seven years ago that I would still literally be doing bookkeeping sometimes. But I think that it's very good that we're so, and all three of us, Jeff Wasim and I are all so plugged in. And I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. Because you, first, it's like lead by example. I mean, we want everybody to be really obsessed with the customer experience. So what does that look like? There's no shortcut. You have to spend a bunch of time with customers. I don't think that it's delegatable for a long time. I'm sure at some point it is. Like, is Satya Nadella doing I don't, you know, at some point you do delegate the stuff, but we're nowhere near that point. And so I think that the journey will continue to have us staying very, very close to customers. And then what are we doing? It's like on the path towards building a profitable company. What's next for that? It's like, hey, got to stay on that revenue curve. You know, keep climbing upwards slowly on those margins. I mean, the North Star is happy customers. The North Star is CSAT. And honestly, you grind it out. It's kind of a math problem. Like, you know what, you know, ARR you roughly end up having by the time you should be going public, right? You like, you know what your metrics need to look like. You know what your margin should look like. You know, you have the financial discipline. So I think, you know, the next five years are like continuing to build out the rigor internally, to hustle it busting our asses to stay on that revenue curve, and first and foremost, delighting customers.
1: Awesome. So wanted to get to some closing questions. And many of these are kind of like words of advice for founders who are listening or future founders. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see other founders make when they first start building products?
0: We made this mistake ourselves, even arguably at Pilot, and I think did with previous companies, The way that you price your product or service has such an impact on a business. I mean, everything from, again, like how much money you can spend to acquire customers to how you can staff the team. I think under-investing in the thinking about pricing and packaging is a really common mistake. And it can be very painful to try to retrofit. Make sure that you have clarity on that. A common mistake is you build something that you think is... Cool, it's a cool feature, it's a cool product, but you can't actually get people to pay you for it. Like validate that people are willing to pay you for it as quickly as you can.
1: So, is there anything about how you think about scaling products that you think of as kind of contrarian or unconventional?
0: Yeah, you tell me if this is contrarian. I think that founders need to be closer to the customer than anybody else. That inherently means being opinionated and therefore kind of up in the business of the product development process for a long time. But who's going to care more, have more skin in the game about getting it right? Every single customer interaction for our business matters. Every unhappy customer can tank the brand. Every happy customer can be a referral. I think staying obsessively close to the customer, the comms, the polish on the product, I actually think that that is really important. And it's not in conflict. You, know, you want to hire great product leaders. There are lots of things to delegate to these talented business leaders. They're going to have a bunch of really clear ownership and accountability in a bunch of ways. I do not think you can delegate being close to the customer, though. I mean that in a pretty obsessive way, like still doing bookkeeping. Still drafting customer comms occasionally, not like on the critical path in a way that is unscalable, but staying obsessively plugged in even seven years in.
1: Yeah, I think it's not contrarian to say, oh, you have to be customer focused. But I think the level at which you do it, and probably the three of you do this better than many, many other founders, it's just the level of detail, the level of customer obsession. It's one thing to say, and that's not contrarian, but it's actually kind of contrarian to do it at that level, I would think.
0: It's because there are trade-offs, right? It's, it's like, hey, if I think that something needs to happen in the product... We need to do it. You sometimes can't like let the machine produce the user research to validate the thing. Sometimes it's like, hey, I just know the customer so well that I know we need to do this thing. And the hard part is like, how do you ensure that there's a a sense of ownership and autonomy and accountability for the product team while also having these strong opinions that need to be factored into the process like that? That's the hard part.
1: Okay, last one. Jessica, who are the most memorable people or mentors that you've had in your career? And what did they teach you?
0: I don't know if this is a cop-out answer, but my co-founders, Jeff and Mousim, have had a tremendous impact on me, not just as a founder and a business owner, but as a human being. And I think that the growth that I have experienced just being tested by a bunch of different challenges running three companies, going through two acquisitions. Yeah, like It's definitely maybe a better person at home. It's like a better partner to my husband. I think it prepared me tremendously for having a kid. I now have a 10-month-old. Congrats. And so I'm just deeply grateful for that. Like Being able to be in the crucible of this the startup experience for so long with these two people who I've known for so long and who I have such deep trust and respect for has just had a tremendous impact on my life. And so I think that if I have the opportunity to shout that out, I would do that
1: here. I think the degree of respect that you all have for each other and and the affection I think that you all have for each other, it seems like one of the things that has really made these businesses successful and has kept you going for so long. So I think that's a great note to end on, Jessica. And thanks for being here. It was awesome.
0: Thank you.